0: Welcome to the Less Spelling Podcast, where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster. The first thing I'm going to talk about is buy-in. So with buy-in is one of the main things I want to focus on when we talk about speed training, because when we're speed training, it's not just us training the athletes. It's us communicating with other coaches. It's us communicating with parents. It's us communicating with all the stakeholders and people that might be involved in that journey. So we need buy-in. We need people to actually buy into the process. So what I call this period is the law of diffusion of innovation, okay? So what this is about is getting buy-in, right? So in the beginning, about 2.5% of the people that enter a space, so call it speed training, uh, about 2.5% of those people are innovators. There's a guy named Latif Thomas who just passed away last week unfortunately, but he was one of the first people that I saw that were doing speed training, number one. And number two, he's one of the first internet marketers that I saw in the space. So he, you know, hit Google ads and keywords and all that stuff. And if you typed in speed training, Latif Thomas popped up, like, you know, I was getting his email marketing, you know, all those things that that are pretty common now. Um, also like innovators like Dan Path that were doing speed training before I was born, Charlie Francis, a lot of these guys took track concepts and then applied them to other sports and football, like soccer, like basketball, and became innovators. And, you know, the problem with being an innovator is that tickle out of the heat when things don't go perfect and when things go wrong. And a lot of these guys blazed the path for us. And right now, I think we're in this phase where we're in the yellow right here. We're early adopters. So all these people on the, on the Zoom, all these people that are listening to this, like if you're hearing this, you're an early adopter because you're you're hearing about this before it's actually mainstream, popular. Um, If you think about like the internet, for for example, there was people that had websites on the internet very early. Um, There's people that believed in it that built a model on it. I think Amazon built a model on the internet before the internet was actually really there. Let me, Jeff Bezos used to present his um, presentation on Amazon before people even had the internet really. So he was a very early adopter uh, in that space. The benefit is that if you think of like real estate and you, you get to a space and you get to an area that doesn't have much building and then you build on it, the value is going to grow and you're going to be, your value is going to grow because you're going to own a piece of that early. So if you're into coaching and you're, you're, you're looking into speed, you're very, very, very early. Um, it's like investing into Google in 1996, right? It's man, what? Put $10 in. You you might be a millionaire right now. Right. But what we're missing is we're missing the early majority and the late majority. And that makes up the bulk of, of what's, what's out there. Um, this includes like people that aren't speed training now. It includes sport coaches that don't understand how to integrate this into practice. This includes athletic directors. This includes all different types of, um, people that just aren't really into speed training yet it's it's not a mainstream thing Um, early majority right now I think the biggest early majority is sport coaches or coaches that coach um, you know soccer basketball football that aren't really on the physical side and that's a that's not a bad thing like you definitely want coaches to be technically and tactically sound I think understanding how speed plays plays into those things becomes really important the late majority is I think more like athletic directors and organizational people that it's going to take a little bit more time because they're further removed from the actual skill and then the laggards like by the time it gets to the last 16 percent, if you're in this space now like you're you're doing well like you're very far into very far into um you know speed training and, and your price is going to be up so one person i want to highlight is martin luther king and and the reason why i want to highlight this is because when Martin Luther King was, was doing his speeches and asking all these people to show up, um, none of these people had social media. None of these people had Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or YouTube. All these people just kind of heard what was happening, and they showed up. And they showed up on time. So they showed up to D.C. for this speech. You could see everybody on the left in that crowd, and you see white people, you see black people, you see Republicans, you see Democrats, you see all different types of people showed up. And... It wasn't because like it was a super planned event. It was because Martin Luther King was able to inspire people. He never gave a plan. He never said, hey, look, like, hey, we're going to do this and then this. And then, you know, this person is going to run this. No, he, he gave inspiration. That was his currency. So all he really talked about was like, I believe, I have a dream. Let's do this together. And everyone was like, yep, let's go. Let's do this. So the point is that he was able to speak across tons of different Uh, types of crowds, like he was able to communicate his message to different, different archetypes of people, like white people, black people. Um, You know, right now, if you look at our political landscape, how polarizing it is, right? Imagine it. Imagine having one leader that could draw a crowd like this and draw um, somebody, uh, people from both sides in there without polarizing beliefs. And that's what happened. What happens now is that because our message is so complex, because our message is so detailed, because our message is so difficult to understand, it's hard to get buy-in from you know th- that late majority. It's tough to get the buy-in from the people that might actually make the financial or organizational decisions that are gonna drive speed training. So we need to get to this point where we can have these conversations. So then I get into leaders versus those who lead. If you guys have ever watched Sing, Sing 2, like I've seen it probably three hundred times because I have a two year old. Um, and essentially, the story is really simple. It's a guy that has a dream of being like mainstream and big time in the theater space, and he's like trying to break in. And essentially, like he finds his way, finds his way in, gets funding, and starts working on this show. And in the show, there's like obviously a big dance part to the, it's a musical, so it's a big dance part to it. And this guy behind the, these words, his name is Claus. and Klaus is a dance teacher and he's probably the worst teacher I've ever seen. Like he's a leader because of his position. He's not a leader because he leads. So he's very abrasive. He says a lot of mean things to the people. like he, he told one of the guys like, I wish you were not here today, I wish you were dead. like there's a lot of things he said. He doesn't know how to lead. He just happens to be in a leadership position. And this is a lot of what happens in our space. We have coaches that are in leadership positions, but they're not necessarily able to lead, right? So this is what it looks like right now. So if you're a sport coach, if you're, uh, let's say, a head coach of a football team or a head coach of a soccer team, you have some type of opinion, you have some type of experience, you have some type of knowledge. Over that, there's probably some culture-specific things like soccer coaches and soccer culture and football coaches and football culture, like there's, there's things that they've been brought up in. Now, if you're in a professional or college team, there's probably a sport scientist and sports scientist is going to communicate to the coach, the data that need that is necessary for the coach to understand. So how much distance did we cover? How fast was it? How many breaks did we take? How many, how many collisions, those types of things. Then you have the medical director that's going to be like, all right, this is the injury report. This is who we need to caution or red flag like you have a whole health side of it return to play all that and then you also have the media's influence on on coaches Um, if you take for example NFL right now there used to be a period before every game the players could go out in the field and do sprint training or if they're developmental guys they could run they could do all these things before games um, that's actually now taken away NFL actually banned it because mainly because of the public's perception of how the field conditions looked by kickoff. And if the field looked beat up, they were saying, Oh, that's that's why there's so many injuries, like which there's not a hundred percent truth to that. There's some truth to it, but the the media has a huge influence on what the coach ends up doing. Right. So when all these people, the media, the sports scientist, the medical director, they usually meet they usually get to the point where they come to a conclusion of what's going to happen. And then they communicate that to the SNC coach, who becomes a secondary or tertiary uh, role in this space. So the SNC coach or the speed coach or whoever else is under there, they have to come up with a training plan and training content based around all the other influences that that just happened. So what happens is is that they're kind of limited. So the time, the time allocation has already been set. The daily schedule has already been set the um, level of importance has already been set and then they're told to come up with the training plan training content which makes it very 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 difficult to execute and actually really difficult to make a a difference when it comes to winning games which is the ultimate goal so what i propose is that there needs to be a level of um, like equal uh, across the board on all these things so if you look at the three categories like Physical, technical, and tactical. The physical side is your SNC coach or sport scientist. Could be your medical and PT as well in that. Your technical is like position coaches or skill coaches. Your tactical is coordinators and head coaches. Now, not one of these is more important than the other, although in the hierarchy of football, hierarchy of soccer, lacrosse, you definitely have higher importance because of salaries, because of, you know, you know just... Their influence on the game. But when it comes down to the actual game level, you need to have a combination of physical skills. So you need to be fast, strong, be able to decelerate, reaccelerate, you need to be healthy. From a technical standpoint, like if you're a basketball player, you need to be able to shoot. If you're a soccer player, you need to be able to kick. If you're a football player, you need to know your routes. All right, then you have tactical, which is more game strategy. So I believe in a world where all three can communicate at the same level. It just takes the same language and it takes a little bit of effort. But when it comes to planning, all three need to be planned. So if I'm a head coach and I'm planning my practice and I'm looking at, okay, this is the scheme we're trying to run, or this is the play we're trying to run, we have to understand what are the technical skills and what are the physical capacities required to get there. Now, if I want to make someone faster, if my practice looks like a bunch of jogging, We're not necessarily going to get faster no matter how much speed work we do in in the offseason, no no matter how much speed work we do before. That's going to negate the, the effort that the strength coach is doing. So we have to coordinate these efforts together. So in this tactical model, if our head coach is a marathon fan and has players do double or triple the amount of volume they see in a game, that doesn't necessarily make them resilient. That doesn't make them a better player. It doesn't help them actually play the game better. The the all the mental toughness stuff in the world doesn't actually negate the fact that the game looks like pretty much higher intensity um, than, than most practices. So if you can increase the intensity, if you increase the speeds in practice, you can make the game better, right? So I think the tactical model of how we organize practice needs to come from more than just a strength coach, more than just a speed coach. It needs a big collaboration between multiple people. So this is something we did with the University of Arizona this year. Um, this is a team that I think next year you're going to be very surprised by how how good they are, and not just because of the transfer portal. I think because of the developmental um, aspects of, the, of what they're doing there. So what we created is a a sheet that has this is a um, this is the athlete management system that has all of our data in it. So it has our GPS data has everything they do in practice, has every drill in there, has everything, every player, and uh, we have reports weekly. So what we're able to see from this is that we could pick a single drill and we could see how much volume did they do, how fast was it, how many breaks did we take, how many collisions did we have. We could track these variables over time. So without getting too deep into like the nitty-gritty, we're able to see how these players manage each phase of practice. So then we can decide okay, we can make one part of practice more uh, speed-based. Like we can make it faster. We can make it more deceleration-based. We can do more braking. We can look at this data and decide, okay, we can do more here, pull back here, and then track that over time, right? Now, one of the things I think is a a massive problem in our industry is that there's tons of myths about speed training, right? So what I just showed you with Arizona is that There's ways to make players faster all year. And I'll show you in a second how we did it even in season, right? But there's a ton of myths about how to make someone faster that kind of negate the facts uh, or science about um, what actually happens on the field. So behind the words is a quick Google search of speed training. And if you Google search speed training, you're going to find a bunch of different things. You're going to find speed ladders. You're going to find certain like businesses and teach speed you're going to find track you're going to find lifting but there's no like common voice on what speed training is right so what we are setting out to do is kind of disprove some of these myths first and educate and teach people and then get into okay this is what you do guys so this is a beeper if you're under 25 you probably don't know what this is but my dad had a beeper until like three years ago right and he's extremely stubborn as a human. But this is, this is what, um, you know, our older generations use. Now, there is no there is no value in having a beeper in 2022 or 2023, right? It doesn't actually help you. Like, if you don't know what a beeper is, like, someone would ping your beeper. Hey, this person called. You go to a payphone phone and then call, right? Obviously, you can use a cell phone to do that now, right? But there's people that are still stuck on to old things because that's how, you know, maybe it was a certain part of their life that they they're thriving in or they did well in business. Like they they hold on to things because of more of an emotional tie to that thing than it is actual use tie. And if you look at speed training now, a lot of coaches are like, hey, like back when I was speed training, this is what I did. So this is what you're gonna do. Right. And a lot of those myths prevail because of that. So a lot of, one of those things is you can't teach speed. So and I usually hear this from coaches that do 16 one tens for speed work. So yes, you can teach speed, but the problem with teaching speed is that most of the coaches aren't doing things that are specific enough to speed training. So one example is 16 110s. Another example is a coach that does off-technical work, a coach that does, does a bunch of drills, a coach that does just lifting, right? So you can teach speed, but it has to be specific. So Yuri Vershansky in the 1990s created Dynamic Correspondence. Essentially, there's five different categories of specificity of how closely related an exercise is to the actual goal of what they're trying to trying to do. And if it's not specific enough, meaning it doesn't have four to five out of five of these things, there isn't a direct transfer. Now you can have a transfer and maybe it's a secondary, tertiary transfer, but it's not a direct. So they are same muscle groups, same range of motion and direction of movement, same muscular contraction, same accentuated regions of force production and magnitude and force and duration applied. So for example, when I was coming up as a coach, everybody talked to me about the force index. And they said, if you can trap our dagger three times your body weight to 2.7 times your body weight, you're fast enough to run 4-4. Now, you can get kids to, to do that, right? And they're still not going to be fast, right? Now, the initial phase of them doing that block of training Will make them faster because it's adding more force into the ground and it's allowing them to apply that force. But they get to a certain point where that no longer can get them faster, and there has to be other pieces of the puzzle that are more specific once they get past that phase. So, is is the force index a real thing? Yes, it is a real thing. It's a thing, and it's one of the few, it's one of the many things that it takes to run fast right? It's one of the strength buckets that we need to run fast, but it's not everything. Okay. So the next thing is if we need to at least sprint one time per week, right? That's that's literally one thing that I ask athletes all the time is that like, when's the last time you sprinted full speed? And like, well, we had practice and it was fast. I'm like, no, when's the last time you went out and tried to run your fastest? And most athletes that I've talked to, even in high school, haven't done enough sprinting in like fast sprinting. Um and we'll talk about this in a second about how it's actually injury risk if you don't and if you do too much of it, it's a danger zone. But typically what I've found is people aren't doing enough. Okay. Now, no time. A lot of coaches say, well, we don't have enough time to run fast. Like, you know, we have an hour session, which means that 15 minutes warm up, 45 session where do we got to do speed? And I say, well, you do have time because you can achieve it in five to fifteen minutes in a warm-up. But there's three categories that are really important when it comes to developing speed. First category is physical development. So physical development is where you can put the force index in, trap or deadlift, power, it's strength, it's reactivity. Those are physical things that could be worked away, worked away from the field, maybe in the gym, maybe in jumps, maybe in something else, loaded jumps, right? You know, technical. So technical is like cueing to help athletes understand context. Hey, Drew, can you unmute? Uh, yeah. Here we go. All right. In so technical is technical cueing to help athletes understand. So that's your A series, your B series, your C series, your dribbles, everything technical. And stimulus means the right dosages at the right times. So think about like if I give you like, 15 minutes in a session. Are you going to do just a bunch of A skips and B skips? Probably not. We may not do that at all. Are we going to do physical? We can. We can do some physical things, but most of the time is going to be spent on getting the right stimulus. If I want to run faster, I need to run fast. So that is the number one priority. Now, if I have extra time, you could put into the warm-up more technical stuff, more physical stuff, right? But a goal would be, to develop technically over time, right? Get the right stimulus often, very often, and then work on the physical qualities as well, right? So here's an example, uh, what we did with the University of Arizona in season, our linebackers, receivers, defensive backs, running backs and quarterbacks all improved their speed. Our D-line, tight end, O-line did not improve their speed, but they were still hitting above, 90% 90% of their max. Obviously, D-line, offensive line, tight end have less exposure to high speeds. So it would make sense that they wouldn't improve. But all the skill and the big-scale positions were able to run faster, even in season. All right. Now, while doing that, our workloads increased. So how much work we did per minute increased over, over the whole season. And if you looked at any other team I would say the trend line might be the other direction. Also, our high-speed efforts increased. So they're doing more work. They're doing faster work, right? And then also our speeds increased. So our speed, our actual max speed increased over time throughout the season. And then our sprint distance, how far we ran, increased, right? Now, the way we individualize this approach, I'm going to get into maybe on another webinar, but we had a plan for how we did it, right? So I'm just going to skip past that one. Another thing we did was look at the excel and decel management. So we looked at how many accelerations are guys doing? How much distance are they doing in each acceleration and deceleration? Because this would tell us a lot about how fatiguing some of the practices were. Right. So these things were giving us insights into, all right, players actually can get faster during the season, right? As long as we manage these qualities. Okay, I'm going to come back to this. Okay, the next thing you looked at is what actually transfers to getting someone faster, right? So if you look at heavy squatting, which is what I was told to do when I was in high school, heavy squatting directly translates to the first five meters of my sprint, the beginning of my sprint. And this is a, a visual from Al um, Derek Hansen, and Carl Val. Uh, so heavy squatting was, had a very high transfer to how I moved at the beginning of my run. Olympic lifting had a heavy transfer to the beginning, mainly because of my extension qualities. Uh, 5 to 10 had medium, 10 to 20 low, and then almost nothing after that. Explosive jumping, high in the first 10 meters, medium in the next 10 meters, and then low after that. Medicine ball throws, medium across, and then none after 30. Plios, it was very high from 5 to 20 meters, 5 to 30 meters, and then kind of died off after that. Resisted sprinting, high in the beginning, very beginning the first 20 meters, and pure sprinting affected everything. So from this, we can say like, all right, coaches that only focus on lifting to get faster. Yes, you can get faster, especially in the beginning part of a run. Will it affect your max velocity? Probably not. Or guys that just do medicine ball throws. Oh, okay, cool. Well, that'll affect your speed, but only in specific areas. Guys that are plyo heavy, Right. So the point is is that it takes a it takes an approach where all these things are present the whole time. You can't just pick one category and say, I'm gonna get faster using this. You have to have things that transfer. And things that directly transfer are gonna look a little bit different. Right. So the number one thing is that we wanna develop technique, obviously, for high speed sprinting, which will take time. Number two thing is we want to train at or around or above uh maximal velocity. And then we need to test and record changes to maximum velocity. Now, how I improve my maximum velocity isn't just running fast. We have to have this list of things in there as well. You do need to lift. You do need to squat. You do need to do medicine ball throws. If you want to improve certain qualities that are going to aid in how you accelerate to that speed. Okay? Another one is if you don't use it, do you lose it? So the aerobic system, when you're if you're doing like a bunch of aerobic 5K stuff, It takes 30 days plus or minus 5 to detrain from that quality. The anaerobic system is 18 plus or minus 5 days. Maximal strength, 30 plus or minus 5 days. Strength endurance, 15 plus or minus 5 days. But maximal speed is 5 plus or minus 3 days. Which means that every week, if I don't touch max velocity, my max velocity will actually start to decline. So my motor control, my neuromuscular function, and my phosphocreatine storage all will reduce. So every five plus or minus three days, that means it could be every three days, it could be every eight days, but at least once a week, I have to touch on that quality. Now, if I look at it from a physical standpoint, like in season, every team understands lifting is important. Now, maximal strength isn't important every week, but they do touch qualities that are close to maximal strength. And they on a weekly basis, right? They do some type of strength endurance work. They do some type of anaerobic work, some type of aerobic work but very rarely do teams prioritize the last piece, which is maximal speed. So if I look at the lowest hanging fruit, a head coach can make players faster just by allowing them to reach maximal speed once a week. Okay, a lot of coaches say, hey, don't we get enough speed stimulus in practice? And my answer is typically no. But the reason why that's important is that running at 85% velocity and running 92% velocity are very different, right? Especially when it comes to stimulus in their hamstrings, and talk about vaccines from a neuromuscular standpoint, from a from a central nervous system standpoint, eighty-five percent is not intense enough to create a positive adaptation, a positive change. So, if you look at uh, segments like ten yards, we're looking at eighty-two to eighty-six percent of their max speed. This is all from Ken Carter. Fifteen yards, eighty-nine to ninety-two percent. Twenty yards, ninety-three to ninety-six. Obviously. This changes significantly depending on the position. So if they're linemen, those, those numbers could be higher at 10 yards, right, than it is for a skilled player. But typically, players aren't getting into that 15 to 20-yard range of maximal spreading to get that stimulus, to get that that tick over to the next box, right? So they're not getting enough from practice. And we've done a ton of studies with high schools, even colleges, even at pros, and look at their practices and them thinking it's high speeds, but because of rest periods or because of distances are allowed to accelerate or sprint, they haven't actually reached those above 90% uh, qualities. Thank you for listening to the Less Spalming Podcast. If you do me two massive favors, first, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. <laughs> second please share this podcast with another coach an athlete or parent who wants to learn how speed is developed thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.